All right, welcome to another episode of the Speech Entropy Podcast today with Stefan van der Float. Hi, Stefan, how's it going? Good, man, good. In uh, in London at the minute with the uh, the team, so yeah, very well. We had a, a nice retreat, which is in Flow Bio World, a, a country hike, uh, so feeling decent. <laughs> That's good, man. I, I can feel the energy. Um, uh, we already talked a bit, and I'm excited that you're on the show today. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about some interesting stuff. You're doing some interesting work. Um, but, you know, as, as always, kind of, um, you know, it's our thing on the podcast to have this, uh, you know, little bit of an icebreaker question here. It would be great if you kind of could, you know, tell, tell us where you are coming from, you know, uh, what, what has been your journey and, you know, how did you end up where you are today? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I, uh, I'm Dutch American, basically split my life between Germany, uh, the United States, Palo Alto, so West Coast, and um, the United Kingdom, which, where I where I did my kind of studies and spent probably the last 10 years, well, actually, the last 10 years of my life uh, kind of working, studying, uh, and building companies. So grew up in, um, in the States for kind of my childhood, which I think was very formative because the part of the U.S. that we grew up in uh, is kind of mecca for, for tech, right? You've got um, every single company under the sun that you know, products of which we're using every day. Their headquarters are based out of there, i.e. their founders are walking and roaming the streets over there. Um, so it's it's a completely different world in that sense where, you know, what, what, what seems like gods of our industry, you see very uh, kind of, it's almost like you see them naked in that sense. They're just, they're, they're vulnerable, they're walking in the streets. Um, so I think that was quite for, uh, formative for me because you, you, essentially pacify or take off the pedestal um like what it is to be a tech founder um because i think in, in blogs and as we were saying previously as well like you only see like the the, the big stuff or the cool stuff of being a tech founder was in palo alto if you're just kind of seeing them out and about um especially as a child you don't even know who they are um it's just it's very very yeah <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if i'm making sense but i, I think for me you you see that like everyone's just a human at the end of the day and building a company is nothing special. It obviously takes great perseverance, uh, the ability to tolerate a lot of stress and emotional duress, um, but it's not a, a superhuman exercise. Um, and especially because one of my sister's uh, best friends was actually the daughter of one of the founders of Oracle. Um, so, you know, talk about like a massive software company going to their house on a regular basis, just hanging out with the guy um, was just really, really surreal. But I think for me, uh, incredibly formative in the sense of understanding um, that everyone in this game is just a human. Um, so I kind of took that energy back from, you know, Palo Alto and, and Silicon Valley back to Europe where we moved because my father at the time was working for HP, wanted to go back to the Netherlands for us as kids and the family to kind of experience Holland before we all went out into the world. Um, so we moved to Holland and basically, uh, this was at the age where you kind of start becoming a teenager and you want to start hanging out with friends and buying clothes that your parents aren't per se, uh, keen to buy for you, go to movies or like buy video games. Um, and my parents were, were very good and strict in the sense that they said, you know, if, if you want to buy stuff that we wouldn't buy for you, you know, you gotta make your own money. Um, you gotta, you gotta source that stuff for yourself. So I did the odd job that every teenager does of gardening, walking dogs, um, kind of IT support or local IT support for neighbors, um, and uh, paper route 
which, you know, wake up every day at like 5 a.m. and do the papers, make sure they're in the letterbox by 6.30 and then go to school. Um, now, Holland being a very rainy uh, country, many of these jobs were outside jobs and quite miserable. So I was starting to look for ways that I could kind of, you know, keep making money, but also somewhat enjoy it and um, not be rained on every single time. So for Christmas, what was it, 2000, and I can't remember the exact year, but I was around like 12, 13. I got a, a web design kit um, to kind of teach yourself how to do uh, basic HTML, CSS. So I, I, I picked up that skill and then started building websites just for fun, initially just for myself, kind of concept stuff. Um, and then slowly but surely started doing websites for, for small local businesses in the area. Um, that then later evolved into my first company, uh, which basically became a kind of a digital strategy agency where we initially built uh, online brand and identities. Uh, so websites, logos, so on and so forth. Over time, we actually pivoted more into like an e-commerce strategy agency because internet shopping or online shopping was starting to become a, a big thing. People were trusting, sharing credit card details online more. PayPal was starting to take up. Um, so kind of saw this trend and kind of became a strategy consultant for these local businesses in terms of how they could actually scale their, their revenue via opening a new channel, i.e. online sales. Um, so did that for five years and then moved over to the UK to do my undergraduate. So I shut down that business because it's a heavy referral-based business. Um, went over to the UK uh, to do my undergrad in, in management. Basically lasted two and a half months of just like being a student. Um, still remain a student, got my degree, but mostly I would say, to be honest, my focus during university was um, to link up with other interesting people on campus and build products. Um, because one thing I learned from NAFIT Solutions was the customer acquisition, project management, and delivery piece, what we never did, because it's the inherently as an agency you don't really do, we never did the scaling new customer acquisition, basically like the product piece of, of that online business. So I really wanted to understand what it took to build a product team, to build a product, and to scale a product. Um, so I met up with a couple of, of folks on campus who kind of shared a similar energy of like also wanting to do stuff alongside their studies. Um, also quite keen to kind of do something as like a web app or an application space. You know, the social network, the movie had come out like a year before that. So all these students, you know, were all wanting to be Mark Zuckerberg. Um, so that's actually where I met Alex, uh, my co-founder of my following two companies, as well as our first uh, employee here at Flabio. And together, Alex and I basically built two companies um, over the span of five years. Uh, one of them raised venture funding. Uh, we took full time after university. Um, so yeah, basically I'd say the first half of my career or the first, let's say section of my career has been building startups. Then I transitioned into working at large organizations. So I went to, um, to Facebook. So after my third company, which was in the space of like HR technology, um, and networks, uh, I joined Facebook to join their internal startup at the time called Facebook at work, which later became a, a more like, yeah, solid, uh, product in their portfolio or their family of products, as they call it, um, which was called Workplace by Facebook, which is uh, right now probably a big competitor to Microsoft Teams or, or Slack. Uh, basically, I joined their, their team quite early on in the growth side um, and scaled up the Workplace proposition in the Benelux market. Uh, and then I went back into Startup Land, where I headed up uh, growth and partnership teams for a couple of companies, um, including a 
a company from one of our investors, Entrepreneur First, called Poly AI, which was a, a voice um, AI kind of, well, voice first conversational AI technology. Um, so very eclectic career, uh, mostly around, you know, what do I want to learn or what industries do I find exciting or what technologies would I like to interact with and kind of bring to market. Um, but the founder inside of me was starting to get very impatient when I transitioned to being an employee. So I'd say for, for a good five years when I was working at like Facebook, at Poly, at Solid State, um, I knew that like, this was not going to be what I could do for the next 40 years. Like I'm, I'm a builder. I'm a product person. I am incredibly impatient, uh, which is a good and bad thing. Um, and what I learned most about myself throughout that period of my career and here before it was just like, I'm a founder. Um, and I think for the longest of time, I didn't really embrace that being a founder is a skill or is a job. I kind of just fell into it. Right. Like I built a couple of websites and then suddenly I found myself doing an agency. I didn't consider it as a career. Um, so it's interesting. I, it's, 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 it's interesting. You know, let, let me just interrupt you. Hold your thought. You know, it's inter it's interesting that you're saying that because I can resonate with that. And I, you know, I, I do have a, I, I do have another friend who, who, who is a dear friend of mine with, with whom we talked about this a lot. You know, it's, uh, I always joke around that, like, you know, uh, people that are really like, you know, founders or slash, I, I like the, the term builders more, um, you know, they're like the, the worst, the worst employees. <laughs> Yeah, because, yeah, they really are. Because <laughs> and that, yeah, <laughs> because you know the company that that basically employs these type of people, they never have hundred percent of the attention of of these type of people. You know that yeah. that's that's the thing. Yeah, and it's 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 not great because like no one wins in that situation. I think for me it was it's like you have to kind of be just very honest with yourself because um, yeah, at times obviously like being a founder sucks, right? Like it, it's it's there's a lot of uncertainty a lot of risk a lot of responsibility but like at the end of the day i wouldn't i wouldn't want anything else um but yeah it's it's, it's definitely I, I i would i would agree with that i mean it's really interesting like if i if i look at some of my other founder friends when we're hiring i'm like i would never hire you you're awesome but i would never hire you because you'd probably leave in like six to nine months because you'd just be you'd just be un unhappy and and mm, deeply yeah. impatient um, but yeah, I don't, I don't think founders make, make for per se good employees unless they're put in an environment where they really get ownership, um, and freedom. I think then you could probably keep them around for a little bit. Um, I remember reading in the autobiography of the, the HP founders, um, called the HP way. There was a section where they basically identified that if they wanted to build the best company, they wanted to, they should also attract the best talent, mm -hmm. knowing that some of the best talent is eventually going to go and do their own thing. Um, and at the time it was totally like unheard of that you essentially knew that people were going to kind of betray you and leave the company. Um, whereas the HP founder saw it as an opportunity and literally in some of their recruitment techniques said, come to HP to learn the skills that you'll need to build your own company. Wow. Okay. So there are ways that I think you can actually capture the, the interest of founders and really like harness their energy and, um, yeah, kind of visionary abilities to like bring things to market. And really it's, it is that energy. It's the, the energy required to bring something from zero to one. Um, I think it would be hugely valuable to, to, to loads of companies. I think the issue is 
most of them just aren't set up that way to yeah, exactly. kind of attract and to enable that. Yeah. But yeah, I, so um yeah. I think I think scale ups I think scale ups in that regard are uh, are probably the best environment for that. Yes, yeah, because I think in that sense, you know, they're they're very much still startups. Um they have a bit more solid foundation obviously they're not really going anywhere anytime soon but there's so much to do we were actually i was talking about this with with our coo yesterday on the way back from the retreat where he was like you know once we get the flow patch in the market and it's selling in the the tens of millions like and and things are just like stable you know it'll be interesting to see like where my patience goes and i'm like honestly at the end of the day there's always going to be something in the startup or in the scale-up phase that is going to feel like a startup like for example the the example i gave him was whoop so whoop recently spun up an entire new division to go after the enterprise opportunity mm. that was a startup in whoop they probably spent the last you know 18 months from a grassroots team from probably a very small squad would be my opinion of like exploring the market testing the market then slowly but surely spinning that up they went through the whole like startup phases internally as an existing company um so there's always going to be something i believe in an organization which feels like a startup if not you're probably stagnating yeah absolutely absolutely i had i had this uh i had recently at like uh you know one of the uh you know he now he's an ex but he, he used to be like one of the top executives at amazon and he was like one of the first guys with aws um i had him on the show and he, he talked about that as well you know like uh that you know these 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 projects basically they were like startups in in in, in themselves you know and in, in, in yeah. such even though it's such a large organization but you know grassroots kind of activity and then you know scaling like crazy yeah yeah i mean workplace was the same uh our our vp jc uh um basically for a very long time they worked with minimum budget minimum team just to prove out um that there was a demand for this product. Yeah. Um, actually, the way Workplace was born was customers of the, um, the partnerships team. So those, the, the folks selling ads, um, they had some of their, their, their colleagues from their customer side, basically trying to understand and get access to what at the time was Facebook. The first verse synthesis of Workplace was Facebook only groups. So you had the core Facebook product with private groups. Um, and those private groups were work uh, groups. Um, and people were like, oh, that would be awesome if we could have that in our company. So yeah, I mean, JC in that sense himself is also, I, I would consider a, a founder and an entrepreneur just within a larger organization. Yeah. Um, but yeah, 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 so going back to then the, the career side. So yeah, after kind of having that realization and impatience, I joined a program called Entrepreneur First here in London, uh, which now they have programs all over the world. Um, which basically helps folks who've kind of made that decision in their career where they decided, you know what, like, I want to be a founder. I want to build something. Um, I just don't have all the skills or for some, I don't even have an idea of what I want to build. I just know I want to build. Um, so at Entrepreneur First is where I met my co-founder Giovanni. Uh, we brainstormed on a whole host of ideas, but really the reason why we, we stuck together um, throughout the kind of formation phase, which is a period in the EF program where essentially you're, you're, you're kind of dating potential co-founders, uh, brainstorming a whole host of ideas. Um, what really clicked between Gio and I was a couple of things like, you know, interest around the human body, interest around building something for consumers, because we believe consumers has like the largest impact and footprint uh, when you're building a product. 
um, I really wanted to build something in the consumer space because my career prior to that was all in enterprise. And I was kind of getting tired of, of enterprise because as a product person, good product means, I'm not going to say it means shit in enterprise, but it doesn't really per se win deals. Whereas in consumer, good product really is what, what, what convinces the user to, to purchase and keep using your product. Um, it's a very democratic space where it doesn't matter who built the product. As long as the product is really intuitive and easy to use, that's the one that's going to succeed. Um, so I really, yeah, was fascinated or am fascinated by that concept. And as an athlete myself, was really keen to start combining that passion with, with human performance, sport performance, um, and like pushing the needle, like optimizing everything you can from the human body uh, for maximum output. I was really curious in that space, as was Giovanni. So we started brainstorming a whole host of ideas and eventually landed on what we're building today, which is uh, using sweat as a source for uh, kind of biomolecular data, which we're approaching it from a, a human performance standpoint, right? So trying to help you and I, anyone in the human performance uh, space, or the, we call it the human performance individual. It's kind of the market we're going after. People who are really, really OTT about like squeezing every uh, ounce of juice from the orange, um, whether that's an athlete, which is our initial target market, or a biohacker, or a business executive. Um, you know, it was really interesting. Stuart, a, a good friend of his yesterday, was talking to a friend who's in investment banking, and they were going out for, for drinks because, uh, you know, you kind of do that in investment banking for for, for customer relations. Um, and whilst everyone's getting hammered, everyone is wearing a whoop. And everyone is like, how far can I drink? What's my whoop kind of allowing me to, to drink towards? How can I optimize my alcohol consumption to be ready tomorrow? Right? To me, those are kind of human performance uh, individuals because they're, they're, they're using data to try and like maximize every inch of, of output of like how much fun can I have before it's going to start to like have negative effects. Um, and that is a space. I think that that's been a space for a while. You can kind of see that in the growth of whoop itself in the growth of like Ura ring, eight sleep, uh, the rise of, of luxury gyms, um, the rise of, of personalized supplementations. Um, it is a, an undeniable fact that there is a huge portion of the consumer population that's really interested in maximizing every inch uh, of their body for maximum output. Um, the issue that we identified was whilst we have all this amazing data coming from solutions like Garmin or Whoop or Apple Watch, which is typically digital biomarkers, what we're lacking is a deep understanding of what's going on inside of our bodies from a biomolecular standpoint. Um, so that became a really interesting challenge for us of how do we, how do we quantify these pretty hard to get data points in a consumer friendly manner, i.e. how do we do it without a needle? How do we do it continuously? How do we do it in a way that's as unobtrusive as possible? Um, and how do we present that information to the user in a way where they don't need a PhD to action it in a way which has maximum output and maximum benefit? Um, so yeah, we kind of synthesized all of these interests and, and um, curiosities uh, and technical challenges into into Flowbio, and the product that we're building is is the Flow Patch, which is um, the world's most accurate uh, sweat sensor. So essentially, using sweat as our source of data, capturing sweat off of the skin surface in real time, and initially starting with uh, fluid and electrolyte loss, helping individuals, those human performance individuals, specifically athletes, um, make 
really good decisions uh, on their hydration. Um, so get personalized hydration recommendations on how to kind of prepare, perform, and recover. Um, so yeah, that's that's what we're building at the minute. Sounds amazing. And you know, let's let's really dive into uh, in, into kind of like the early days because um, you know ultimately you guys are kind of like a hybrid between a you know a, a hardware and a software company here. And um, you know, uh, well, what is what is the background for your know, first question? Me, what's the background of your uh, co-founder, Giovanni? So his background is electronic engineering. So he did his PhD at ETH Zurich in um, okay. kind of miniaturized electronics, specifically more on the like the biomedical device space. Okay. Um, so looking at acquiring like heart rate uh, signals, mm -hmm. brain muscle signals. Right. Um, so yeah, trying okay. to figure out how to get very very weak signals from the body and uh essentially make sense of them okay yeah so so i mean this guy speaks sensors uh also data um but i mean still uh, nonetheless right it's it's kind of like a a new challenge that you guys kind of were facing so what was were um you know the, the first approach I'm, I'm i'm particularly interested in the hardware side of things you know like how did you how did you uh, go about, I mean, like with your co-founder, I can imagine he knew where to look. That's always the most important thing, I guess, um, that you know where to start looking. Um, but like, how did you approach that in the sense of like, okay, so, um, you know, we want to measure, we want to measure information from, from human sweat. Uh, what type of sensors, how do we get that, you know, produced? Is there something that is existing already out there? Walk me through kind of like the first, first steps, you know? Yeah. So, so Giovanni has always done a very good job of trying to understand not only do we need to be able to build this, we need to be able to like bring this into hands and, and, and be able to scale it. I manufacturability of this technology is, is pretty important. Um, so he, he spent a lot of time researching what other academic groups and research groups uh, had been doing in the past or have been doing around quantifying sweat. Cause the idea of, of using sweat as a source of data at the time wasn't new. It was definitely, um, in its early phase compared to people exploring obviously blood or urine or right. even saliva. Um, the reason being is sweat is just such a annoying fluid to capture. Mm -hmm. So it's incredibly inconvenient to deal with. Um, one of the challenges is just like how you actually capture it off the skin surface. Um, so, so yeah, we where he delved into a lot of research papers, spent a lot of time um, kind of in, in the academic world uh, also, just speaking with some some of the teams or some of the folks in the space who who've been uh, building, um, and then also just using his own expertise, um, developing our initial system architecture, which is still the system architecture we're using today, around a disposable, reusable, uh, disposable containing the actual sensor component, the reusable containing the electronics to interpret the signals coming off of the sensor, um, and using ion selective electrodes as our source of, of the sensor because you're able to get the most accurate uh, reading of sodium. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's sometimes you, 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 you realize like how many or how, how luck really plays a mix in terms mm -hmm. of getting it right. Because obviously Giovanni being more on the electronic side, we needed someone to support us on the biosensor side. So it's, that's, that's, a, that's a chemical engineering problem. Um, so hiring the right individuals to to basically build this technology with us, um, finding the right people to then also interpret that data, finding the right people to build out further the electronics, uh, getting people who understand the manufacturing side and have 
built and manufactured these systems at scale or not per se these systems but biomedical devices um so yeah it's it's i mean there's a long road ahead naturally uh like we, we haven't yet gone to market we're, we're currently about to roll out the, the first beta units to, to athletes in our in our beta in our paid beta program um but i think what we what we have demonstrated to ourselves and also to to our investors is we have the ability to execute which i think is is one of those things which now having done it um when when people ask about you know who's your competition are you scared of new competitors entering there are so many hurdles that you need to jump over you know i applaud any competitor entering successfully and executing successfully in this space um it is not easy there's there's a reason why a lot of people and investors do not touch hardware um i think it's it's incredibly um it's very rewarding mm-hmm. when you have the device because um, it's you know it's it's something physical uh my my zoom is blocking out but you can see the hardware here it's like yeah. you can touch it you can feel it in our case you can wear it um it's it's not just an app on your phone which a user can download at no cost to them and and delete at no cost to exactly. them exactly yeah. um it's 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 a wonderfully sticky product but to get there a lot of things need to need to go right um and I think that's that's something that as a first time hardware founder um at times you're just like you have to really learn to just go with the flow mm-hmm. and surround yourself with insanely good people um so in this case like i know some of my founder friends they hire incredibly young teams uh kind of most of their engineers are straight out of university i think in hardware if you want to bring something to market there are there is just a certain level of expertise and years in industry that you need yeah. to do this right um and yeah, I think it's 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 one of those things that you don't really know until you're in the space. Mm-hmm. So you know, maybe kind of as a as a last dig in here for the for the hardware side, um, how was uh, you know where did you guys kind of like focus in terms of you know sourcing sourcing kind of like the hardware uh, you know parts and and like you know doing the production because you know I'm I'm thinking uh, you know because it's like supply shortages and you know just like logistics and and and, and you know all, all these things kind of being s- such a such a pain in the ass uh, within the last uh, 12 months right um th- that that seems like because I, I talked I talked with uh, a couple of um, you know hardware founders that are uh, that are building in, in the space right and 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 this is always one of the questions I ask right like how how do how do you or how did you tackle tackle this challenge basically yeah, so we've been incredibly fortunate slash intentional in uh, or on that side. So one of our very first investors was Hacks, who's one of the world's only hardware uh, kind of accelerator, like or early, early stage hardware mm-hmm. investors. Um, and they've been around for, for a very long time. Kind of their roots are in Shenzhen. Um, okay. So they, they come with a wealth of knowledge in terms of manufacturers to go to for certain technologies or certain um, processes like who's best for what so they they were incredibly instrumental in the early days of sourcing um our first few manufacturers or, or at least providing a list of what they consider uh kind of yeah due diligence to manufacturers for certain certain approaches right. we're still actually working with with one of them um however since then our, our head of engineering he spent a lot of time in finding manufacturers to essentially paralyze as well the manufacturing, uh, make sure that we have multiple suppliers for potentially the same thing. Right. Because um, yeah, it's supply chain shortages are are one thing. I think it's also just we're quite lucky in the sense of in terms of the actual 
raw materials. Mm-hmm. Every everything is is it's, you know it's it's plastic. It's adhesive. Right. Um, the only thing that is very um, very difficult in terms of planning for is the the chips. Right, the mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the chip exactly. shortage is definitely yeah, yeah. something we have been experiencing. So luckily for us, we're not yet at the scale phase. Right, so we don't need tens of thousands of, of these things. We need a couple hundred. Um, but that is something you do need to be thinking of, and it's 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 very difficult. Because you're also having to order ahead. Sometimes these chips have mm-hmm. a, a, a lead way of like a year. So you're trying to figure out like, well, in a year's time, how many chips do we need to service the hypothetical athletes that at that time we're going to be selling to? Um, that has not been easy. And at the end of the day, you kind of have to go, yeah, go with the idea that like you're probably not going to make like no decision is right or wrong. It's kind of like what data do you have today to make that decision? Mm-hmm. Um, so the way that we're assessing from a chip potential is like, what can our team handle um, in terms of like number of athletes that we're working with at various stages, what right. funding events need to take place also potentially ordering, um, you know, in, in like order a hundred a month helps with cash flow. Uh, by the time that you come to 12 months, you know, you have a lot, you have 1200 sensors. Um, so you're also just like different ways of, of splitting up the supply. Uh, but yeah, yeah, it's, it's, again, this is one of those things that is a hardware fa- first time hardware founder, you have to really quickly get up to speed with, cause it's something you never have to even consider in software. Um, yeah, I think for, from our standpoint, our philosophy as well is we, and this, this is also something that, that we share with, with Pedri, one of the investors and, and uh, one of the co-founders of Ura, we're really, really adamant about making a very good product experience and we for the next like year are probably only going to be available to max 100 150 athletes because that is the manageable number that we can work with to create a genuinely or and iterate a genuinely good experience with because we know the opportunity exists we know the interest and demand is there where where the, the company or the opportunity falls apart is if you don't deliver to the expectation so we're we're giving ourselves the time and, and, and space, not like crazy amounts, um, to essentially get to a point where we really, really love the user experience and we love the, the end-to-end product um, so that we can confidently hit scale. Because what you don't want to do as a hardware company is you know move quickly um, for the sake of just getting to a launch event, yeah. hitting launch on tens of thousands of units and having everything break, having unhappy customers brand going yeah. uh, down the gutter recalls etc um so we're kind of we're taking a uh you know an opportunistic but but kind of reserved approach to getting to market because we're in this for the long game um we don't want to crash and burn yeah yeah yeah. but this is a perfect transition you know um so you as somebody that has worked at the intersection of product and growth you know um, i'm curious to like you know get your get your take and you know more or less i get i guess also you know your role as a founder and that team you know uh thinking about that and and you know you you just um um gave us a little bit uh, a little bit of a sneak peek here in terms of you know the number of athletes that you're striving to work with and um you know i mean having spoken to uh you know multiple teams that are working in in that specific market right that are you know kind of um targeting the you know athletes but also um you know with uh kind of what 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 is coined um sometimes as kind of the everyday athlete right what you 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 mentioned the perfect example with the with the uh investment banker uh, guys and the whoop um so 
you know, walk me through your, um, you know, kind of your job in a sense, right? So when you, when you start to think about, okay, so, you know, uh, how do we get kind of like the first uh, athletes or, you know, even, I don't know, maybe teams, you know, small athlete teams kind of on board for a better, how did you go into, uh, what were your first touch points? How, how did discussions go? Because these people, right, they're getting like a lot of kind of like offers every day, you know, in terms of that are promising to do something better, you know, to optimize, yeah. etc. Uh, obviously, because um, I mean, uh, th there's definitely the need for them, right. But to guide me through your, um, you know, kind of your approach towards that. Yeah, so I think for us, this was also part of like the, the kind of, yeah, the idea validation or understanding whether this product deserves to exist in the first place. So we, we spoke to a lot of athletes, a lot of professional teams, um, also brands like sports supplement companies like Science and Sport, Precision Hydration, because we really wanted to understand. And this was also something that EF was, was hammering all the time is, is you know, build a painkiller, not a vitamin. So really, really validate that what you're building is needed not it's nice to have um so in terms of in terms of the the athletes that we spoke to and kind of the the, the validation piece i think for us we always focused on if we can't convince the people whose careers basically uh depend on on, on performance benefits and on squeezing every ounce of the orange as possible if they if they don't get excited by this like it's going to be very difficult to get others excited about it. Not excited in the sense of the concept is cool, excited by the genuine value of the product. Um, you know, I believe if, if advertised right or marketed correctly, you can probably get people excited for a good year or two to buy something. And then, you know, they get it. Yeah. it. It doesn't live up to expectations or like they're, they realize, actually, I don't really need this at all. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, and, and basically the, the business implodes and, and, and that was that. For us, what we're genuinely interested is the value that we're creating um, needs to be 10x better than, than what's currently available because only then do we think you have a solid business. Um, so we spoke to a ton of athletes, um, basically tried to get those conversations to like pre-order. So um, we, we've always been pushing, you know, when you have a conversation, actually get them to commit get them to put their money where their mouth is because that's really at the end of the day, the only signal you can truly trust of like, how interested are they? Um, similar with, with professional teams, you know, get them to commit to, to work with you, uh, invest their time with you, um, invest uh, invaluable time, like with athlete exposure. Um, so we, during the, the 20, well, 2021 Olympics, um, we're working with uh, some TGV triathletes to help them with their hydration strategies. And that's kind of, that was one of the first things that were like, if these people who, you know, the Olympics as an mm -hmm. athlete, that that's your ultimate goal. Like you're not yep. messing about when you want to go to the Olympics. If they're giving us a, at that time, eight month old startup with no validated technology, no academic research, no credentials, if they're still letting us have access to them and asking for this data, there's got to be value in that data. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Like they're, they're not just, you know, they're not just doing this for fun. They're not just doing this um, because they like to play around with new technology. They're doing this because they see genuine value in that information. So from our standpoint, that's, that's kind of how that's, that's our like approach or, or philosophy when it comes to, to interacting with, with the market. It's, it's 
try and really validate that there's value to them by getting you know cash in hand when it comes to the consumers when it comes to the professionals really lean in to see like is this something that they're somewhat curious about or is this something that they really want and if they really want it how are they showing that to you by like, access for in this case um in terms of how we're focusing which which athletes to go to like you know the high end versus like the the, the kind of the amateur or like the the, the yeah the fitness curious um, from our standpoint, we're very much focused on more of the, the, the serious athlete, right? So those for whom, you know, Strava calls it the invested athlete, um, to whom performance and to whom sport um, is such a core part of their identity and such a core part of their routine. Because as a new product, you're competing with change in behavior, right? Mm-hmm, you're, mm-hmm. you're competing with getting someone to incorporate something into their, their everyday routine and use it enough and be convinced enough to continue using it so we want ourselves set ourselves up for success where we want to make sure that the people we're focusing on for them they're already in that headspace or mindset of leave no stone unturned Mm -hmm. um and you know data or they take action through data um and they're also educated around the, the the need for hydration so for really simple example we ask athletes, do you consume electrolytes? Because the logic is, if you don't consume electrolytes, you probably haven't been deep down the rabbit hole enough to understand that like, you need electrolytes when it comes to performance. You need electrolytes when it comes to recovery. And I can kind of, I, I compare this to my own journey. I was only exposed to electrolytes in my second season of Ironman mm-hmm. uh, when I started to get a coach. And my coach basically upped my training volume well above that, which, which I was doing for myself when I was self-coached. And I started to get a lot of symptoms of dehydration. And he was like, yeah, like how much are you drinking? What are you drinking? What are you supplementing with? Um, and ever since then, I've never looked back. But, you know, for, for a good year and a half, I didn't know that I needed salt. You know, to me, I was told that, that, that adding additional salt to your diet is a bad thing. Um, so it's, it's all these like little signals and little... Yeah customer behaviors that you need to really tune into um and i think one of the biggest things then is you just kind of need to be the user yourself it's very difficult to build a product like this without being the user yourself because there's so many unknown truths that you just take for granted or wouldn't even uh consider that are so key and so vital to building a a, a, an experience such as such as the flow patch Um, so yeah, I think I, I I don't know if that entirely answers your question. But, it, yeah, it does. It does. We've been talking about it internally. Yeah, it does. It, it, it definitely it, it definitely gives some 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 clarity in that sense. And um, you know, maybe kind of as a roundup question for uh, for, for today, um, you know, if 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 you can kind of you know give us a sneak peek in the sense of you you already said like you know you're 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 about to to start kind of like a, a um, your your paid uh better and and you know guide me through kind of your your um you know journey within the next six to 12 months you know because i'm also very curious and you know how how the you know recent kind of like market of market effects and and you know um crazy crazy kind of like sentiment in 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 the startup world has has kind of impacted you know not just not your company but like maybe also you personally in that regard (laughs) yeah so um 
well, we can go into into depth of, of how like Web3 and NFT companies have affected funding <laughs> availability. Uh, that, that's a whole other conversation. Um, <laughs> but yeah, in terms of how we're going about it, so the next six to 12 months, so the next six months, we're realistically going to be focusing on around 100 athletes. Yeah. Um, so up until the end of this year, uh, of which we basically, we, so we, we call it, we, we're calling it like batch one, batch two, batch three. So mm -hmm. batch one and batch two, those are kind of spoken for, sold out. We're actively taking reservations for batch three, which will be starting uh, kind of towards, well, Q1 next year. Um, mm -hmm. So we'll kind of be expanding out the the, the paid beta program. Um, so I guess anyone listening to this, if they are interested, they can go over to the website um, and, and, and show their interest. In, and one of our team members will, will be in touch to kind of qualify whether whether you're a good candidate or not for, for, the, for the, the, the beta. Um, so that's kind of how we're going to market. So the next, the next year, um, is very much going to be beta phase, uh, interacting very closely with with everyone on the beta, getting their feedback on a on a kind of a, a, a regular cadence to ensure that we are really creating and crafting the best experience and delivering to the expectations of of our athlete population. Um, in terms of the like the demand, I think again this kind of goes to the the point of like focusing on the the higher end super invested athlete. Um, they don't really change their behavior or their uh, consumption as a function of like financial uncertainty. One, because endurance sports is kind of already an expensive sport. So if you're able to do it, it means you're already in somewhat of a financial position to be able to afford. Yeah. Um, so the events that we're, that we're experiencing and going to be experiencing going forward impact you less. I don't say they don't impact you at all because they do, but they impact you less. Uh, and that's actually one of our main goals is we really need to focus on building something which throughout a financial event is not one of the first things you're considering canceling uh, when you're looking at your finances. So we are super, super or hyper focused on uh, creating value and demonstrating that value. Uh, the good thing for us when it comes to, to, to fluid and electrolytes, there is a noticeable uh, difference in how you feel and how you perform with, when you're hydrated versus dehydrated. And it's something that we ourselves are somewhat okay at noticing, right? Like I can kind of understand, you know, the flow patch doesn't exist. So I myself am still experiencing dehydration when I'm out on a four hour bike. I know exactly when um, my body is starting to decrease its performance mm -hmm. because I haven't consumed enough fluid and electrolyte and the rest of the ride sucks. Mm. That to me is worth how, you know, hundred, 200, $300 a month to solve. It is because of the amount of time I just spend doing my sport. Yeah. Um, I think it's it's very difficult to convince someone to pay that kind of money when they're going to the gym or running once or twice a week. Right. Um, and that's, I think, you know, regardless of the financial situation we're about to go into and find ourselves in, I don't know if that's ever a smart business to build. We And this is kind of something that I talked about in the, the fitness uh, or the Fit Insider article is we think and I think the best business to build is kind of the you want to be the, the what we call the destination device, right? It, you want to be the Garmin of the space rather than like the Fitbit of the space because typically in sport and fitness, it's an evolutionary consumer path. You either tail off, so you either don't uh, pursue kind of your career in, in health and fitness long-term because it's it's so hard to change a, a, an innate behavior and it's so difficult to go from not fit to kind of someone who's routinely maintaining their fitness and, and getting fitter, et cetera. Um, because it's, it, it does take a lot of time. Um, but if you do, for whatever reason, stick to that behavior, you rarely see someone 
you know, let's take running. You rarely see someone stay on like the 5K distance for the next 40 years. Yeah, doing yeah. the same pace, the same loop. It's typically they get bored of running, they take something up or they go, you know what? I want to do a 10K. You know what? I want to do a 10K and get a PB. You know, mm. let's do a 21K. Let's do a 21K and do a PB. And, and with that evolution in your uh, kind of goals that you set for yourself, you also evolve in what you're spending and buying surrounding that sport to get to those goals. And it's typically that you buy better and better things. Um, so from our standpoint, we want to be in the market positioned as the destination device, i.e. the garment of, of the sweat sensing uh, wearable space, because that's realistically where you're going to have the highest long lifetime value from a customer, the highest loyalty. Um, like it, it's, it's funny. All of my friends who, who have Garmin will never go back to Apple watch. And some of my colleagues in the office who aren't even crazy, crazy athletes now that they just, cause they're surrounded by people who wear garments. So some of them are just like, oh, shoot, maybe I should buy a garment. They are moving away from Apple watch to Garmin because it, it provides them with a lot more insight into their um, kind of digital biomarkers. It has longer battery life. It's just a better device. If you want to know more about your body. Yeah. Um, and they probably won't go back to Apple watch after experiencing that. And that's really, that's, that's what we're aiming to, to, to be. And, and with that then comes the benefit of you kind of ride or you can kind of go through certain phases socioeconomically um, or survive certain phases because you're, you're somewhat above, um, above the, 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 the storm ish. Right. Um, so yeah, that, that, that's kind of how we're thinking about it. Yeah, I mean, you know, that that was definitely that was definitely great insight, Stefan. So, you know, again, thanks, thanks, thanks a lot for you know coming on to the show. It was really great having you on. Um, curious to see where you guys are gonna go. You know, we should definitely touch base maybe, you know, after after your uh your beta, maybe in, in six months or so, you know. Uh, definitely let's let's keep the conversation going. It was really great having you on. Sounds good. Yeah, I I I I'd appreciate that. It'd be fun. <laughs>